0: hated 7th grade. It was the worst year of my life. Um, I want to prove to you how horrific 7th grade was for you even without words. This is me in 7th grade. This picture says it all. It was the worst year ever. Um, It began at the end of sixth grade, really, sucking, that is, and that was when my friends and I that I had been really good friends with since kindergarten got in a massive, ginormous fight, I kid you not, about potato chips, and the worst part about it is I'm the one that did it. I told a lie, a big, fat lie about potato chips. I have no idea why, and it caused... Serious friend drama. In fact, we had a four hour conversation about something we called a trust pot. And it's not like pot that way, but it was like a clay pot, like we had made in art class. And my friends basically said that my lie about the potato chips unraveled our trust pot to the point that it was only a small ball of clay. And I was clearly on the outs. And that's how I began seventh grade on the outs for sure having no one to sit with in the cafeteria, and I was the only one in my friendship clique in the certain core that I was in, and then my seventh grade teacher of my three teachers, one despised me. I do not know why, but it was so bad that she actually, truly forced me to read my language arts book upside down. Seriously, if I would turn my book correctly the way one normally reads a book, her name was Mrs. Wentland. You can imagine where we took that. And we, when I would turn my book the right way, she would come to my desk and turn my book upside down and say, JL, you are a good reader and therefore you must read your book upside down and backwards. And it was horrible. My parents thought I was crazy. Um, eventually they believed me and they confronted me. It was just one thing after another in seventh grade. Then I got strep throat. Not once, not twice, but six times between the start of school and Christmas break, when my parents then decided two days before Christmas I should have my tonsils taken out. So, worst Christmas ever. And seventh grade really never got better for me. The picture I had, um, that was my school picture, and um, I had strep throat on that day, as I did most every day of seventh grade. And I guess I'm just saying we all, we're, we all have an awkward day or an awkward season of life. And I don't know if yours was seventh grade or if you feel like you're in your awkward season now. But it, it gets better. Hang in there. Don't quit life. Um, because eventually it comes to an end. And even Jesus, like even Jesus went through adolescence. And I find it super crazy. Like the Bible has a story about Jesus at age 12. And it's, he's in the temple, and he's fighting, and like debating, and like arguing in like a cool, intense way with the religious leaders of his day. And that's age twelve. And then nothing until thirty. And I thought to myself, I can't prove this in the Bible, but I thought to myself, is that his seventh grade year? Like, is that when it started for Jesus, when when life got awkward? Also, just randomly about that picture, just one more thing. um, I text my mom, and I was like, I need the picture that's the worst picture of me. And she's like, oh, I know exactly which one you're thinking of. Okay, so thanks for that support, mom. Took her about eight seconds to text me the correct picture. Anyways, so Jesus, we're talking about Jesus. So I I don't know, I can't prove it from the Bible, but I'm just curious, from age 12 to age 30, was that awkward for him? Was it hard? Was it challenging? The only thing we know is found in Luke chapter two, and it says, Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So there's literally 18 years summarized in one sentence, like, What are they cutting out? That's kind of just something that I'm wondering. So somehow Jesus transitions from childhood to adulthood, and then his first move in adulthood is he goes to the river named Jordan, and he gets baptized in this river. That's his first big adult move, and then his second move is he um, goes out into the desert, and that's where we're going to pick up kind of the timeline of Jesus' life in Matthew chapter 4. We're in part 2 of Jesus' diaries, just really getting into who is Jesus, what does he like? What was he like? And what is like was his purpose on the earth? And how did he teach and interact? So we're going to start Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. It says, afterward, meaning after the baptism, afterward, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the lonely wilderness in order to reveal his strength against the accuser, which we know is the devil. By going through the ordeal of testing and after fasting for 40 days, Jesus was extremely weak and famished. Okay, y'all, have you, 40 days. Like I feel like that should get more than a quick mention in this verse. For 40 days, Jesus went without food. Now it doesn't say he went without water. That's supposed to be humanly impossible, but 40 days without food, and that just gets a one-line entry in the Bible. And we find that Jesus is in the desert, and he is being tempted by the devil. Now the crazy thing is, Who led Jesus to the desert? Let's put the verse back up there. Who who led Jesus to the desert? It wasn't the devil that tricked him into it. The Bible says the Holy Spirit led Jesus. So somehow God brought Jesus to the desert. Now God didn't bring Jesus to the desert to tempt him himself, but he brought Jesus to the desert, leading Jesus to the desert, knowing that there would be a time of testing. And sometimes we think if something's going wrong in our life or something's going bad in our life, we think it's the devil. He brought me to this. But I think sometimes the tests in our life are tests from God, where God isn't testing us, but he's allowing life to test us, or he's allowing our enemy to test us to see what we're really made of. Because that testing, a lot of times, will bring out what's already within us. The testing that Jesus went through was designed to show what was already hidden down inside of us. And so we can't just blame the devil for every bad or weird, awkward thing that we're encountering in our lives. Sometimes we're led into a hard circumstance to bring to the surface who we already are. And the very thing that we're being tempted with is to show us something about ourselves. So 40 days and 40 nights in the deserts with absolutely no food, and the enemy comes at him, and his first temptation is in an area that, in that moment, Jesus is very weak in. Jesus is hungry, and so he tempts him with hunger. And, and that's kind of the first category that I see, that Jesus is tempted where he is weak, Hunger. And so when we are looking at temptation in our own lives, we have to ask ourselves the same question, like, where am I weak? Because we each have a weakness. We each have a hot button that we're very easily tempted. And in that moment, 40 days, 40 nights, piece of bread sounds pretty good. But there is a moment in every person's life where there's an area that we're weak in where something that's usually not that great sounds pretty great. And we have to be able to look at our lives and know where we're weak. And so we ask ourselves, like, am I tired? Physically being tired, physically not getting enough sleep can set us up for falling into temptation. Another thing is we have to say is, like, are we hungry? Like, we make fun of the new word that's developed in your generation of hangry, but that's a real thing, people. When we're hangry, we don't act our best. We don't tend to overcome temptation. We don't tend to demonstrate who God really wants us to be if we're stressed out, if we're, if we're feeling lonely. These are different categories in our lives that can show weakness in that moment that can make us vulnerable to give in to temptation. And so all of a sudden we're lonely, we might give in to sexual temptation completely differently than we would be able to resist if we were feeling filled up with lots of fun times with our friends. We might give in much more quickly to lies if we're physically tired. We might give in much more quickly to gossiping if we're feeling isolated, or lying if we're feeling stressed out. We just need the pressure to be released and so we tell a quick lie. So Jesus, he he faced this temptation about hunger, not because hunger was the thing, but because hunger was where he was weak in that moment. And when we start looking at how does temptation come to us as humans, it comes to us because the devil's no fool. He doesn't tempt you where you're strong. He tempts you where you're weak. And so each of us has that area. And for some of us, we are never tempted by the thing that our best friend is tempted by. And vice versa, it's individualized. And so the devil goes after Jesus in this area because the guy just fasted for 40 days. He is crazy hungry. The second thing I see about these three temptations is that Jesus was tempted in an area that he would later struggle. So that second temptation he went to was him on the cliff, The cliff, and the devil said, throw yourself off and God will catch you and you won't have to die. But why did Jesus come to the earth to begin with? To die. And Jesus knew his very purpose was to die. But here the devil is tempting him to get out of something that he knew he had to go through. And sometimes that's what the devil does to us. He tempts us with something to get us out of something that we're maybe fearful of having to go through. And so that's where we have to ask the second question is Jesus was tempted in an area that he would later struggle with and that was death. And so we ask ourselves what is an area that we are fearful of? What's the fear that's kind of in the back of our minds as we go through life? Maybe because the truth is if we're afraid, we're more likely to act foolishly. If we're anxious, and just tense about something, we're more likely to make a poor decision when we're faced with that temptation. Because we're not thinking clearly. Because when we give in to fear, we're not focused on faith. Now, Some people will try to tell us that faith and fear are opposites and they can't exist at the same time, and I don't believe that. Some of the biggest moments of my life where I've been the most fearful, I've still stepped out in faith. And I know that many of you have similar stories. Faith and fear almost always exist together. And if you try to only step out in faith when you don't feel afraid, you'll never actually step out in faith. I remember when I wanted to be a youth pastor and I was 18 years old. I felt the call of God in my life and I was like, this is what I'm going to do. And I told my parents and my parents said, "Uh, we've never heard of a girl youth pastor. I don't know if that's a thing. And I was like, I it's a thing because in my heart I hear God calling me to do it. And my dad's like, "Mm, you should probably have a double major at least and, and get like a teaching certificate and like be a public school teacher. I wouldn't count on youth pastor as a career as a girl. But I felt God calling me. Was I fearful? Yes. Definitely. But I also was trying to put faith into the same situation. So I found a Bible college, and the Bible college was in another state from where my family was. And I literally did not know a human being in the state that I was going to go to college in. And so the day that my parents helped pack up all my belongings and and moved me to college, I was so afraid at the same time that I was filled with faith. And so faith and fear aren't opposites. They're like connected somehow, and they, they work in in conjunction, and when we're afraid, we have to enter our faith. Fear is not a time to withdraw our faith, it's a time to enter our faith into the equation and, and press through. So, Jesus was tempted in an area that he would later struggle with death, and that, that prompts us to ask the question like, what am I afraid of? Like, what's a future struggle that I am fearful about? And how do I press through that temptation? A third way that Jesus was tempted is he was tempted in an area that was central to his identity. Worship, right? The devil said, if you'll bow down and worship me, then I'll give all the kingdoms of the world to worship you. Well, why did Jesus come? So that we would all have a relationship with him that would include us all worshiping him. So the devil was offering him a shortcut to fulfilling his mission. The devil was attacking and tempting him in an area that was connected to who he really was, like his truest identity. And so that should prompt in us a desire to ask ourselves the question, like, who are you in Christ? Because part of your identity is probably connected to how the devil tempts you. Case in point, you've probably all seen this. Some of the prettiest girls struggle the most with thinking they're ugly. They don't even think maybe I'm not the most pretty, they just flat out think they're ugly. And some of the strongest guys feel the most insecure. Some of the smartest people are tempted to feel stupid. Some of the funnest people to be around feel that other people don't like them. Why? It's because we get attacked, we get tempted in an area that's central to our actual identity. That's where he comes after us. And so if you're feeling a huge attack, saying you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, you're stupid, and you're tempted to believe that lie, flip it on the devil and, and, and start to investigate, like why is my mind being so attacked? There must be something significant about my intelligence that the devil is going after it. Or if you're constantly attacked about your job, that you wanna have in the future or constantly attacked about your body, then there's probably something incredibly special and powerful about that area that's being attacked and you have to stop that lie long enough to twist it around and look at it for what it is and realize that the devil is in the business of tempting people to believe the opposite of what God says and who God says that they are. He just attacked, the devil did, Jesus' identity and his purpose, and the devil attempts us tempts us to doubt the very thing that's most true to who we are. The Bible says it this way in Hebrews chapter four, and I think this is so powerful. It says this, so then, we must cling in faith to all that we know to be true, for we have a magnificent king priest, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who rose into the heavenly realm for us and now sympathizes with us In our frailty. He understands humanity as a man. Our magnificent king priest was tempted in every way just as we are and conquered sin. Another translation says and was without sin. So now we come freely and boldly to where love is enthroned to receive mercy's kiss and discover the grace that we urgently need to strengthen us in the time of weakness. So what this verse is saying is that we have... A king in Jesus who was tempted in every way, just like we are, who gets it. And because he gets it, we can boldly go to him and ask him for help to overcome our weakness. We have a king who gets it. Jesus isn't just a faraway God. He's not just a distant God. He was also a man. He was both. And because he was both, He can sympathize and empathize with us as humans in an extremely profound way. And that's a theological truth that I want you to lock into. Jesus wasn't half God, half man, like some kind of morbid character, like a blend from a Marvel movie. Like, Jesus was fully God and simultaneously fully man. Fully God, 100% God, God's Son, God Himself, and fully and completely human. And this verse in Hebrews 4 that we just read says that those two things combined because He was God, He didn't sin. Because He was man, He was tempted. Basically, all of that verse could be summarized in this He gets it, so you can talk to Him about it. He gets it. He gets the temptation. He gets the struggle. He gets The wrestling, he gets the battle. He gets it because he lived it. And because he gets it and he lived it, we can talk to him. We can ask him. He can sympathize with us. He can empathize. He can feel what we feel. And guys, when we're trying to battle temptation, that matters so much. It is so frustrating when you're trying to communicate to someone Something that's going on that's in leadership over you, like you're trying to explain to a teacher an injustice, and they don't empathize with you. They don't get it at all. And the more you talk, the more they you realize they have no clue what you're talking about. Or maybe you're trying to explain to a boss, but they're just blind to what you're trying to say. Or you're trying to explain to someone a true injustice, but they're so focused on seeing it their way, the more you talk, the more you realize they're not getting it. God is the opposite of that. He literally came from heaven to earth so that he could get it, so he could understand what we're going through. A classic example of this from my own life was when I was in high school, like soccer was life. I absolutely loved soccer. And we were playing, uh, my team was really good, and we were playing in the state quarterfinals right before the state championship game. And my team against this other team was fairly evenly matched, However, the ref. And I know people will often blame a ref, and it may or may not be fair or right. Like, was that really the right call? This was ridiculous. The entire game, first half of the game, they called nothing against the other team whatsoever. They were making up calls against us. The ball wouldn't even touch a person, and they would call a handball. The ball would go out of bounds, and they would give the ball to the, our opponent even though they last kicked it out. They would call pushing when there was no one was touching anyone. It was constant the entire half. The crowd was freaking out. The Our fans were yelling. Our parents were yelling. Our coach tried to reason with the refs. It was so flagrant. So I'm the captain of this team my senior year quarterfinals. So I go to the ref at halftime and I try to be as chill and composed as possible and not aggressive. And I'm just like Sir, as the captain of the team, I'd like to discuss some of the calls that you've been making. And I try to make our case. And I say, like, this is the quarterfinals. This is a big deal to my team. Our school has never made it this far. It feels, sir, as if you have called no penalties against our opponents and all the penalties against us. It feels very one-sided. And he didn't, like, card me or anything. He just didn't listen at all. It was just 100% a closed door. And I got the impression he did not empathize. He did not care whatsoever. He couldn't understand. Not a single example that I gave. It was just like speaking to a rock. And my brain was boiling over. And in the end, the second half went on the exact same way as the first. And we lost the game in overtime, 2-1 to one, in a shootout. And after the game, I watched the referee put his arm around one of the girls on our opponent's team and walk her to his car and drive off with her. And it was very apparent that the ref was this kid's dad. And I remember just staring at it going, he was never going to get us. He was never going to side with us. He was never going to empathize with us. There was no way we could plead our case. There was no way. We could have won that argument. Our God is the exact opposite. He pursued us to come to us, to show us, hey, I'm accessible. I get it. I get what you're going through. I get the struggle. I'm 100% God, but I'm 100% man. I've been tempted in every way like you yourself have been tempted, yet I am without sin. I get where you're coming from. You can tell me. And so I don't know what temptation you are personally facing in this room. If you're facing a temptation to give up, if you're facing a temptation to become depressed, if you're facing a sexual temptation, if you're facing a temptation to lie to your parents or to try um, drugs or alcohol or press into those things more, I don't know what it is. And I can't identify with every single struggle in this room, but he can. Jesus can, and he does. He gets it. And he wants to be included in whatever you have going on. And I think sometimes we overcomplicate this idea of temptation, but, but the essence of it is in this verse in Hebrews 4, it's because he was a man. It says at the end of this verse, it says, So now we can come freely and boldly to where love is enthroned. That means we can freely go to Jesus' throne and say, Hey, Here's what I'm going through. We we can freely and boldly go to where love is enthroned. To what? To receive judgment? To receive, I told you so. You should have stayed away from that. That was ridiculous that you gave in. No, it's not to receive judgment. This verse literally, literally says it's to receive mercy's kiss. To receive mercy's kiss and to discover the grace. Now, what is the grace for? To discover the grace we so urgently need to just be forgiven for the bad things we've done is to discover the grace we urgently need for the purpose of strengthening us in our time of weakness. Meaning he goes with us, he gives us strength to next time overcome. Not just that we should get stuck in this pattern of, here I am again, I looked at porn again, sorry about the porn again, sorry about the porn again, sorry about the porn again, every single time, but he gives us the grace To forgive us, but also to strengthen us to overcome it in the future. Why? Because he gets it. Because he's walked it. Because he's been human. And he's tasted and felt the weakness that is humanity. And he cares. And he empathizes with us. So friends, I don't know what the temptation that you're facing is. I don't know what your hot button is, what your weakness is. I don't know, I know what mine is. And I do know that Jesus wants to be invited by you into that, into a conversation about the weakness, into a conversation about your frailty, into a conversation about your hurt and your heartache and your struggle with sin because guess what? In this human body we will continue to struggle with sin until we die but we don't have to struggle alone, we, struggle. we can struggle with him and receive the grace to overcome in that weakness. If you would, close your eyes. I want you to pinpoint in your mind which one, which one's the weakness for you? Where, where are you weak? Jesus fasted 40 days, he was weak with hunger. Where are you personally weak? Is it with gossip? Is it with sexual stuff, is it with substance abuse, is it with cutting, is it with lying, is it with being disrespectful to leaders in your life? Where is that weakness, because we all have one. And once you call it to mind, I wanna invite you in your hearts to to begin to have a conversation with Jesus about it, begin to talk to him about it. Say, "This this is my weakness, God, you know it, it's lying. I lied about potato chips when I was in sixth grade and I I continue to struggle with stupid, pointless lies. I don't know why. But God, I need Jesus. I need your empathy. I need your grace to overcome it. I need your mercy kiss to conquer it next time. Strengthen me in my area of weakness. So I want you, once you've identified that, to begin a conversation with Jesus about that area of weakness. He already knows about it. Talk to him. God, you know I struggle with overeating. You know I struggle with the cycle of an eating disorder because of it. You know it. Help me. I need your grace to overcome it. You know I struggle with calling this person you created me to be stupid or ugly or unimportant. You know, I don't see myself the right way. Help me. But friends, the more we'll talk about that with him, the more of that mercy kiss we receive, the more of that grace to overcome that weakness we have the next time that temptation comes because there will always be a next time. As long as we're in this body on this planet, there will always be a next time. So, God, you've heard the cry of our hearts. You've heard us mention to you what you already know, what our weakness is. And, God, we open up that conversation with you. You said we can come boldly before your throne and talk to you about our weaknesses. So, God, we acknowledge them and we tell you and we say we don't want it to be a one-time prayer. We want it to be an ongoing, continual conversation where we acknowledge to you what's wrong with us and you give us strength to overcome and make right within us what we can't fix on our own. We don't wanna be out of connection with you. We wanna be connected to you. And we know our sin blocks that. So help us. Thank you that we serve a God who gets it, who empathizes and sympathizes with us in our weakness. We love you.